You're listening to the Makers and Mystics podcast. This is season seven, episode 11. In this episode, I'm going to take you with me to Denver, Colorado for a live Makers and Mystics event hosted by QRZ Denver and the gallery at FDC. You can find links to these organizations as well as links to participating artists from the event, Kadash Contemporary Dance Movement and the Remnants Film Project in the show notes of this episode. Patrons of the podcast can enjoy access to a live Q&A segment with today's panel guests, along with additional interviews featuring composer Matthew Langford and visual artist Jeremy Grant of the Remnants Film Project and QRZ founder Tina Ray. If you'd like to support the production of these podcasts, please visit us at patreon.com slash makersandmystics. This is Art as Incarnation, live in Denver, Colorado. Welcome to my living room, everyone. So we have on my far left, Jake Weidman. Jake Weidman is a professional artist and certified master penman from Denver, Colorado, and he is the youngest in history among only 10 existing masters today. And beside Jake is Kim Morsky. (laughs) And Kim is a visual artist and a printmaker who is also based here in Denver, Colorado. Her prints and artist books have been exhibited nationally in solo and group exhibitions including the Luminary Center for the Arts in St. Louis, Printed Matter in New York City, the Indianapolis Museum of Contemporary Art, and the Museum of Contemporary Art in Detroit. And beside Kim is Mr. Alan Brooks. Yes. And Alan teaches graphic novel writing for Regis University's MFA program. He writes a weekly comic for the Colorado Sun called What Did I Miss, or What I Miss. And he wrote a graphic novel called The Burning Metronome, which is a supernatural murder mystery with a social commentary. And Alan is also a fellow podcaster as myself. That's true. (laughs) (laughs) So tonight's topic is art as incarnation. And I want to start with a quote from one of my favorite Irish poets and philosophers, and this is John O'Donohue. And John O'Donohue said, the invisible hungers to become visible, to express itself in our actions. And he went on to say, when our inner life can befriend the outer world of work, new imagination is awakened and great changes take place. And I'd like to add to this that it's the artist that satiates this hunger for the invisible to become visible through the creative process. I've often said that all art is incarnational. All art, in a sense, is word becoming flesh. It's my own personal conviction that all art prophesies before we ever get into the discussion of the intent of the artist or the content of the art, but the creative process itself prophesies. 
word becoming flesh. And I wrote down the definition of incarnation according to Webster, just to give us some context. Uh, But Webster talks about incarnation as a person who embodies in the flesh a deity, spirit, or abstract quality. In Christian theology, the embodiment of God the Son in human flesh as Jesus Christ. And I love this definition, the form in which a person spins in incarnation. It says the word incarnate, it's represented in the ultimate or the most extreme form. Embodiment, representation in human form. The idea that God incarnates himself in man. A desire to make things which will incarnate. The living embodiment or the quality These are all beautiful things, huh? But I want to start from a spiritual foundation with this discussion, and we can move on into the creative process and some of the more creative ideas of what art as incarnation means. But this, of course, takes me to the Gospel of John. And I'm just going to read this to us, because John was a mystic if there ever was one on the Isle of Patmos, and people tell me they tried to boil him in oil and they couldn't kill the guy, but then he's seeing visions of heaven and all kinds of crazy apocalyptic things that I'm sure make wonderful inspiration for comic books. (laughs) But in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made. And then further down it says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory, the glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So in each of your practices, the creative process takes a concept or an idea of something that you've imagined, you've thought, you've felt, whether in your spirit or just something that you've connected with, And then your creative process brings it from the realm of the invisible, brings it from the realm of the intangible into something that we can see and and hold or touch or encounter, engage. And I'd love to know from each of you, where does that process start? What What is the beginning for you? Like, when you enter your creative process, we we can just start with you, Alan, and, and work our way to the right. Where does that creative process start? Uh, it's interesting that you're talking about um, the intangible. So I feel like a lot of what humanity struggles with, like the things that hurt us or injure us or that we're trying to overcome or better, there are all these intangible things. And, and you made this comparison between artists and prophets. And I, you know, I think like uh, the voice of God for a lot of people is intangible. And then the prophet makes it tangible. They put it in terms that other people can understand. And so when it comes to... Uh, for me, art is this way to grab onto these things like uh, love or sadness or whatever and take them and make them tangible so that the people who are engaging with the art have a means of being able to, to grapple with these intangible things. Mm-hmm. Did I answer your question? That's beautiful. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Kim, if you have a thought, that'd be wonderful. Yeah, I think a lot of times my work starts from something, a story, or something I come across, like what you were saying, wanting to make the invisible visible. Something that 
moves me or honestly, a lot of times it's something that really upsets me. <laughs> and I just, I don't know how else to respond to it other than to engage with it in a visual sort of way where I'm working with um, not just images, but language and working through a story usually. And for me, my work, a lot of it, the kind of theme that goes through everything is reconciliation, but not just reconciliation in the sense of making relationships right, more a lot of times in the sense of having to accept a really difficult truth. And so a lot of times I feel like I'm trying to give voice to a story that maybe has been covered up or maybe told in one way and I want to present another side of it. So yeah, the, the invisible, visible relationship is a big part of what I'm thinking about. Mm-hmm. Jake, what about you? Yeah, this thought of art really becoming flesh for me actually reminds me of, of something that Dorothy Sayer wrote. And she was one of the inklings who used to meet with C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien, and she was a playwright. And she equated the, the whole creation process to this, this sort of three-part progression. And so the second act of her process is... The, the incarnation. The first part is conception. And the beautiful thing that she did was that she compared the whole process to the Trinity. And she says, God the Father, like the planner, is the, is the conception. It is that part that you're dreaming of this idea. You have this great concept of a piece, but the incarnation is, is that emblem of Christ. It is that symbol. And then the third aspect of that is the response. It's the response of the viewer, and that is the Holy Spirit. Um, and so for me, that, you know, it's the second turn in that grand play of the creation story. And for me, is always a very, it's a very exciting thing that involves a lot of, of prep work ahead of time. Because for me, it's, it's not just a matter of taking idea and putting it onto paper, but thinking through the disciplines that I need to hone before I can even approach that concept. You know, it's really interesting that you bring Dorothy Sayers up because earlier I had been thinking about how that concept of Dorothy Sayers was an important topic or an important picture rather for tonight. One of her books, and I don't know if this is where you got it from, but The Mind of the Maker. Exactly. By Dorothy Sayers. And she's talking about how do we explain the Trinity? And she's a detective novelist. And so she talks about the Trinity in terms of the writing process. And she explained it this way that God the Father is the concept of this idea. It exists from beginning to end outside of time. Its wholeness is there. And then Jesus, the, the incarnate word, is the story written down. And then the Holy Spirit, she says, is the impact or the power that that story has once encountered has on the reader. And I just thought that was a brilliant way of describing that. But it it leads me to another question that I want to ask all of you. And that is, once your art is born, once it's gone from the realm of the concept to the realm of the tangible, it tends to take on a life of its own. Much like our children, right? <laughs> Pretty soon they're out running around and it's like they've got a will and a desire of their own, you know? And I find that art is the same way. And I would love to hear from you, what is your experience with some of that? Even if it's just a, a quick personal story, tell me an example of, of how your art outlives your own concept or what do you even learn from the art that you make? We'll start here and go around. Yeah, we'll do it in order. All right. So... There was a, there's a, I went to San Diego Comic-Con last year. 
Uh, there was a woman who had just had two strokes, so she had aphasia, which meant that, you know, like she'd be switching words. So she had difficulty communicating. Uh, and she bought my book, and then I saw her at San Diego Comic-Con this year, and she was speaking a lot more clearly. She told me that she used my book for her speech therapy. Uh, she said that the therapist would read some, and then she would read it, and then she would have to try to describe what happened in my book. And she was like, a lot of weird things happen in your book. <laughs> you know? I didn't know how I would describe it. So, but I never imagined that something I created could be used for something so, so beautiful, you know? Mm -hmm. That's wonderful. Yeah, I guess one instance that was really meaningful to me was um, a body of work that I created, I guess, between about 2014 to 2016 or so, um, focused on these covert radiological weapons tests that were done in St. Louis in the Cold War era, and my parents were living there at the time. And so it was a, a story that meant a lot to me personally, and I discovered it through um, a PhD dissertation that explained it all, what had happened. Um, and the, the researcher was Lisa Martino-Taylor. And I was doing all this work. I read her whole dissertation and made all of this work in response to it. And at one point, I just kind of wrote her <laughs> to say, like, I'm doing this. And she ended up contacting me and connecting with me. And I ended up being able to go to St. Louis, where she was based. I wasn't living there anymore during this event called Sunshine Week um, that highlights um, Freedom of Inf Information Act requests and transparency. And it was a bizarre experience where she introduced me to people. Like, she was a hero for me, kind of, in just all the work that she did. And she introduced me and allowed me to share my work with other people. And being able to share it in context with her was like the fullest kind of expression of my work that I could imagine and not something I never expected. What about you, Jake? Uh, yeah, it's, it's, hard to, it's hard to pick up on a single story. I feel like, you know, there's a couple of pieces in there. It's a theme that I'm exploring right now is doing some of these old hymns and, and rewriting them on calfskin vellum and using hand-ground inks and uh, to really retell that story. So in a lot of ways, it feels like collaborating with an artist that is many years past. And so uh, the amazing thing with, with that, and I think that's been one of the most rewarding things that we've seen, you know, my wife and I, who she helps hold down the business. One of the most incredible things that we see is, you know, we sell limited edition prints of these. And so we get stories from people who said, you know, this was a gift for my friend whose father just died suddenly. And I can't tell you what it meant. When they opened it up, you know, they fell to tears. And so taking something that is so special like that, so it has such power, it has such a long history to it, and kind of step, you know, it's like I'm not there at the beginning of the story, I'm coming in at the middle. Because this was written back in, like, the 1870s. And so to, to step into the flow of that time in history and regenerate it, and now there's this interconnectedness. It's like, I don't feel like I'm the, I'm the catalyst. I feel like I'm just one link in the chain. But it's been one of the most rewarding parts of this process and one of the most incredible themes in art to tackle. You made me think of the work that you do and the art that you create is born out of a very traditional context. There's a long history, a long tradition. And I'm always curious how tradition and innovation work together. And 
I was sitting here thinking how we all inherit the tools of our trade. You know, my, my friend Corey, who's part of the Breath and the Clay, he likes to say that we stand on the shoulders of those who have gone before us. And so we're born into a tradition. Even if we're the most non-traditional of artists, we're still born with an inheritance of tools, of approaches, of, of a whole history of things that have gone before us. And yet, the artist's temperament is always to stand at the edge and look beyond and then step one step over into this unknown, into something that hasn't been incarnate or made incarnate before. So talk to me some about how tradition and then your own unique expression work together in the art that you make. That's an excellent question. I, for me, I love, I love the history that is there. When I first got into calligraphy and I reached out to my first mentor, his name is Michael Soule and he's one of the existing masters. He said, you know, Jake, he says, I can see your passion for, for calligraphy and handwriting. And he's like, I'm going to send you some practice materials. But first, before you dive into this art form, I'm going to give you a copy of my first volume book, which is the entire history of the Master Penman program in American Heritage Handwriting. And so that unlocked a whole world for me and really drew me in to this deeper level of this art form that I was going to step into. And it brought a new level of reverence to what I did because now I knew that when I picked up the pen that, you know, it's like, yes, I'm, I'm standing on the shoulders of giants. I'm rehearsing the strokes of masters. And it's because of their work, it's because of their dedication that I have a straight path forward. So that's deeply important to me. In fact, I was just getting a friend of mine who I met at this conference brought out this exemplar of this, this great old master penman, W.E. Dennis. And I had only seen this piece in books, but he had the original. And he opened it up to me. And I was like, I, I mean, it literally had tears in my eyes. And he's like, he's like, Jake, you are capable of doing this. Like, you know, and I said, yes, but he did it first. And, you know, there's, there's power in those who have gone before us, and there's a deep level of respect that should be paid to everybody who has walked that path that makes it easier for you to walk on today. So I think that, that that's really critical. And then the way that I innovate from this is I feel like, you know, you can't honor the past by repeating it. You honor the past by giving it life and relevance in a modern age. And so... It's taking that and pushing it forward. Just as the, as the old masters were innovators of this craft, it's like, so too must I mimic them in being imitators to drive it forward. You know, it doesn't serve it any better to just repeat what they did. It's like, I have to take it to the next step. And that's the next responsibility for me, is to continue to reach higher, though I'm standing on the shoulders of giants. Beautiful. Right on. Yeah, I might share something, kind of like a different take on it. Um, I, so I'm a mother, and something I've been thinking about recently is the place that I have as an artist and mother that is a lot different than the women artists who came before me. Um, and I was, I was speaking with uh, one of my former professors about a week ago, and we were kind of just touching on just how different our experiences of, you know, her experience choosing a career in art, and she was also a mother, what the things that she had to navigate were really different than what I had to navigate. And, you know, it's not just the art world, it's it, culture obviously has impacted that too. But something I think about a lot is 
what the women who are artists went through before me and sometimes had to choose a really different path than what I have been able to do, which is have children and be with my children and still pursue a career in art that I'm so grateful. I don't feel like I have to choose. I feel like I've chosen to make my family my priority, but I also feel like my art can complement that. It doesn't feel like one of them is a sacrifice. And they also still feel kind of separate too. I'm not trying to make art out of my life. <laughs> so I'm so grateful for what, from what I inherited from, I think particularly the female professors I had who demonstrated for me what I could do in the arts, but didn't make it look just one specific way, I guess. All right, so uh, you guys know the Twilight Zone, Rod Serling. All right, so I feel super connected to this dude. He died in Ithaca, New York, a month and a half before I was born in Ithaca, New York. My first name's Rodney. That's a strong case, right? You can't even, okay. <laughs> but uh, my writing is super uh, influenced by him. Uh, he was not a fan of sci-fi or fantasy. He was always trying to write um, uh, basically things that made us look at ourselves as human beings, like things about sexism, racism, war, et cetera. And he kept getting censored. He was censored for 12 years, uh, and they called him the angry young man of television. And after fighting that battle for so long, he decided, hmm, maybe if I use fantasy and sci-fi, I cannot get censored. So he went and talked with Ray Bradbury to learn how to, uh, to tell these stories in sci-fi form. And uh, I'll paraphrase a quote from him later, but basically it was, uh, I could have Martians saying things that I couldn't have Democrats or Republicans saying. <laughs> and it's this idea of uh, parables, right? And I, I feel like parables are powerful, so I stand on his shoulders. I certainly stand on the shoulders of uh, Jesus using parables or uh, the prophet Nathan when he was talking to David about the whole Bathsheba debacle, right? Like, he took it out of the context told this story with all the same principles in them, and then suddenly was like, that's you, you know? <laughs> Which is just one of the things. So I really feel like I learned a lot from that stuff. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that is so good, that is so good. By the way, can I just, are you wearing a Tin Man t-shirt? It is a Tin Man, yeah. What, can I, well, hang on, just, just hang on a second here, friends. <laughs> Let me, oh. are you guys seeing this? <laughs> Oh, yeah, Wizard of Oz. Oh, there you go. Yeah. I mean, you know what I'm saying? I didn't, I mean, cardigans, I mean Oz, there's a little bit of Ithaca, New York bracelets. going on right here, you know what I mean? Some, yeah. some Twilight Zone in Denver, you know? Uh, well, that's a story for the I'm sure party. everyone listening to the podcast will love looking at our T-shirts. <laughs> we're going to take a, uh, a photo <laughs> after it. this, yeah. and we're going to put it on the episode. Well, you bring up a good point. And that is the use of metaphor. Martians can say something that the Republicans or the Democrats couldn't write or about, you know. Uh, so I'd, I'd love to talk a bit about metaphor and symbol and interpretation because when I think of art as incarnation and when I think of the intangible becoming tangible or the invisible becoming visible, for me, the metaphor is the language of the spirit. The metaphor is the clothing of the invisible. It's the place where things actually take on flesh. And I think that's true not only for writers, but objects can be metaphors. 
Shapes can be metaphors, much like the film that we saw earlier. You know, that, that was speaking something to us. That, those were metaphors. But I'd love to know a bit about your relationship to the metaphor and to the symbolic in, in your own work. Well, so I, I, uh, I believe that, this is just my personal conviction, but I believe that all the, the isms like sexism, racism, ageism, whatever, is either a failure or a refusal to see the humanity of the other person. Beautiful. Uh, and so for the people who refuse, they've made a decision, so you can't really reach them until they decide something else. But the people who are just failing, sometimes art, uh, metaphor, can create a bridge for them to see the humanity of this other group. And so uh, for me, writing, I find that the power of the parable is that it takes it out of this emotionally charged place. Like if I start with something and I say, hey, you, I'm sorry, I'm focusing on you. But, <laughs> but, but as soon as you say that, it, it makes people like, uh, they're on guard, they're, they're feeling defensive. But if you take it out of the context and put it into something else, then suddenly people can see the principles and then it starts to dawn on them, oh, I've been doing this. Maybe I should think about it. So that's the power of metaphor for me. It's beautiful. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah, I think in my work, a lot of my bodies of work have dealt with what a lot of people would maybe think of immediately as a political theme or subject, but that's not really my goal. A lot of times I start with a specific story, but I'm really trying to, to tell a bigger story or to think about a bigger concept and how it relates to more people than just the ones who are involved right, you know, in that particular space and time. Um, I guess one of the examples that comes to mind is um, I studied abroad in Israel when I was in college, and so when I came back to the States to complete my thesis, I was thinking a lot about my experience there. And um, my thesis ended up being on covenant. And I did a piece about the United States involvement in the Israeli-Palestinian peace process. Um, and obviously that's a really contentious issue. And you know it can bring up all kinds of responses. Um, but what I was really after was the idea of how we form communities and boundaries and how we separate ourselves from other people and the types of relationships that we, or maybe the types of social structures we use to create relationships. So the, the work I did, I screen printed with an edible ink, handwritten promises that people had written down along with excerpts from the uh, different peace treaties that had been made. I screen printed them with edible ink onto bread and I cooked it right in front of people and then gave it out for people to eat and break bread together. And I, I wanted people to be thinking about just all of our inability to really keep our word <laughs> in every, you know, all the time um, or to the best of our ability and thinking about covenant as a way to form relationship that's not based on agreement, which I think is something like our society really doesn't know, you know, culture doesn't know how to do that. We form our circles around what we agree on. And so that was something where I, I felt like I could take a political, you know, story, but make it much bigger through the metaphor of bread and breaking bread. I think symbolism and metaphor are something that, uh, something that I'm very chiefly aware of and something that, you know, it's like the deeper I go, the more I discover that that's all that we really see and experience around us because even language is, language is a symbol of something else. We speak in symbols. You know, every sentence is just a long train of symbols that we communicate towards one another in order to convey thought. So there is, so there is power in, 
in symbolism and it is so integral to the way that we live our lives. And I think that that's one of the chief responsibilities of an artist is to be the keeper of the symbols. And so I feel like in a lot of my work, you know, going back into some of the history and in in those old symbols that, that were true and were that universal language that was later turned to gibberish, it's, it's my, you know, I feel like it's my responsibility to go back to the origins of that and restore those symbols and bring us back into this place of communication because our symbols are under attack. You know, everywhere we look, language is under attack. And, you know, I think in the context of, you know, art as worship, symbols are known as icons, right? That is, that is iconography. And even our own humanity right now, us as the symbols of what we reflect is chiefly under attack of what a person is, of what a human is, because we are all image bearers of God. And so that is going to be number one on the, on the enemy's list. And so I think that that's important. And it's, art has this beautiful, humble way of reminding us the power of symbolism and the power of what is real. G.K. Chesterton, and I think somebody else referenced this, it's a beautiful quote from G.K. Chesterton who said, the tellers of, uh, like the writers of fairy tales will write about how an apple is golden just to remind you of how beautiful it was the first time you realized that they were green. And so the responsibility of the artist is not so much to make new worlds, but to make this world new. And I think that we do that through the power of symbolism. You say some good things. (laughs) (laughs) Any more thoughts on this? Well, when you said the thing about art being like our children, I had a thought, which was uh, when people are nervous about creating. There's a friend of mine who says that uh, all art is like, it's like having children. Like you're, you're talking with your loved one about how your children are going to be the perfect manifestation of your love and have all of your attributes. And then when they're born, they just crap over everything, right? Uh, the idea is that you, you imagine them as divine, and then when they're here, they're less divine. But you don't love them any less, right? And there's this thing when we want to create art that we're so afraid because we think it's not going to be as divine as we imagined it. And the truth is, it's not. But so what? You can still love it. And, you know, the last part of that for me is if you can only hit 20% of the beauty that you're trying to accomplish, that's still 20% of beauty that wasn't in the world before. So why would you rob people of that? That's beautiful. Mm-hmm. That's, that's so good. good. Yeah. <laughs> drop the mic on that one, right? <laughs> but no, that's really good. I'd love to know what is your process of facing that very thing, like, because we, we always, our, our imagination allows us to see sometimes much broader than our ability to, to channel into what we make. And I know people that have said to me before, well, I would really love to create this, but I know it won't be perfect. Yep. And so I'm not gonna create anything. Or people have said to me before, I don't wanna do that because I know too many other people who have done that better Mm. then I can do it. And so all those things start getting in there and then you never create. Yeah. Tell me some about what helps you in your creative process between concept and vision and execution. I feel like fear is, like often we're taught to, to ignore fear or shake it off, right? But fear's a real thing. The conclusions that fear gives you, those are not real, right? So it doesn't go away by us ignoring it. 
If you think about uh, the, the unidentified fear is always worse than when you go through and be like, what's the worst that can happen? And so I try to think, what is the worst that can happen? People will be mean to me on the internet, you know? <laughs> I mean, and that sucks, but it's not the worst, right? It's not the worst, worst thing. And so uh, I think identifying the fear and then concentrating on my process, like these are the 16 things I have to do to get this thing finished. So then every time I go to work on it, I don't have, I don't have time to, to fear because I just have another thing to work on. So then when, what happens is I go through that process and I get to the end of it and then it's done and then I feel all my fear, but it's done, so it's okay, you know? So that helps me, just concentrating on the process, I guess. Yeah, one of the reasons that I ended up going into printmaking was because there, with printmaking as a medium, there's a, a separation between you and the work, which is the, the press and what you call the matrix in printmaking. So the, like the, wood, the piece of wood that you're carving or whatever it is. And when I was working in drawing and painting, I, had, I was really paralyzed by that kind of fear of trying to make it perfect and not proceeding because I wasn't sure how to like get to the perfect thing. And with printmaking, because of this separation and the fact that it's not direct, I could start working and it was more of like a call and response. So I would put something on the press, print it, see how it comes out, and then be able to respond to it. It could be terrible and then I have to find a way to make it into something that's not terrible. <laughs> so for me, it actually made me work in ways I absolutely would never work if I was only drawing or painting. So that's something that it kind of like gets me outside of just my own brain and gets me to respond to things that are like coming at me is how it feels. Mm -hmm. That's good. Uh, I think it was Matisse who said, painting is the easiest thing in the world, but beginning a painting is the hardest. And, you know, because there is that, there is that grand fear of, you know, do I have what it takes? to do it again. Yes, I've done it before, but will I have what it takes to do it again? And it is also that other fact of like, you're, you want to chase after perfection. And this is true, like when you're, when you're striving to do like certain styles of script, you want every single stroke of that script to be perfect. And, um, and I think you have to, you know, you have to realize that you are a fallen being that, you know, perfect is not, is not achievable, but it's, you know, it's something to, it's, it's like the North Star. It's to be ever pursued, but never reached. You know, it, find, it defines that ultimate point that marks out our path forward, but it's like, you're never going to reach it. But it's, if you did, you know, would you really be happy with the end result? It's so much about that journey. It's so much about um, playing that out. And that is an intimidating process because you do see your shortcomings, like, you know, having a kid. You see, <laughs> you see your own shortcomings reflected back in that child. And with art, you know, there's not your spouse to blame it on. It was like, she's your daughter. So I don't know. <laughs> I mean, obviously she's having a tantrum here. But with art, there is that. And, you know, I have pieces, you know, hanged and I have to frame them and put them up on the wall behind glass, because then that way I won't go back and I won't mess with them. They have to be mile markers along that journey towards perfection. But, you know, you can bet your bottom dollar. Every time I walk by those pieces, the things that I focus on the most are my own shortcomings. Mm. We'll have one last question that I want to ask the three of you. And the question is this, how much 
does the audience impact the work that you make? And what I mean by that is this, you know, we're talking about art as incarnation, word becoming flesh, and things that are spoken or things that are created are created unto, they're conversational. All art is communicative in that way. And so, but it's a very tricky, and I've talked to artists that have completely different answers on this, so I always love asking the question, because some people say, oh, I think about my audience through the entire process. Other people say, I have to get everybody else out of my head. And I think there's, there's validation and truth to, to all of that. But I'm curious, as you're in your creative process, how much of your work is impacted by the audience that you know your work is going to reach? Do you, do you create as a part of a conversation with an audience you already have in mind? Or do you just create out of the wellspring of what you're grappling with or what you're experiencing and the audience comes later? It, for me, it depends on the kind of work I'm making. So I, I have like a couple different like branches of my, my practice that go in really different directions. So I have socially engaged participatory projects like the bread projects. And with those, it's really about like audience participation. So I'm thinking a lot about what are the materials communicating? What is the experience communicating? And how is it going to be experienced and thought about by an audience? So it's really important what the audience thinks. But in the rest of my work, I don't really feel like I think about the audience at all, except that I don't want it to be unintelligible work or anything. But um, I really do start with a story or something that I'm wrestling with, like you said, and I feel like it's me working it out. Um, and sometimes it's, a, it's something for you know, I'm trying to communicate something really specific, but if I was to ask my broad audience if I should make work about radiological weapons tests, I wouldn't <laughs> get a really big response. You know, it's, it's something that yeah. people don't always understand where you're about to go or where you're even going. And even sometimes when people see my art, they, I think sometimes people feel like they're supposed to get, like, get something, and that's not even for me what it's always about. And I, I think there are, you know, there's multiple interpretations, and there is a story to be told, and I'm okay with there being mystery and wrestling. I'm not waiting for them to get the story, so to speak. Uh, well, for me, the audience doesn't influence what I say or what the story's about, but how I express it certainly is influenced by the audience because... Uh, like if I have a really important message and let's say I go to a part of Russia where no one speaks English and I'm like saying my message in English, doesn't matter, it's not reaching them, right? So I have to learn how to communicate with the people who are around me. So th that's the same thing for me in terms of um, writing stories. I uh, pay attention to what things affect people emotionally, what things can make people connect with the journey of the characters. So like a lot of that but I really don't try to think about people's opinions because I think that, that uh, you can never win that. I feel like I'm readily mindful of that end process because for me, that's the final turn. And you know, to point back to, to Dorothy Sayers' like, metaphor, you know, that is the final turn is the response. And that's, that's where I say like when, when an art piece is truly finished, it's not when I lay that final stroke on the page, or it's not when I sign my name in the bottom corner, it's when it's seen. Um, because that is the final turn of the creation process, of the creative process, and for me, that's, that is holy ground. Because 
if I am faithful in the creation process, as I collaborate with God, I know that, you know, I am just setting the stage for him to take it. And I've been, you know, in front of, in front of so many of my art pieces and had so many incredible moments with people who open up in ways that, you know, that I could never imagine of, of cultivating otherwise. And to me, that's, that's hollowed ground. And, and I think that that is where, that's where I think Dorian Gray got it wrong. You know, Dorian Gray believed that he looked at this portrait of himself and he thought, this portrait is so much greater than I am because it will never fade, it will never grow old, it will long outlast me. And he's wrong because we are the eternal stuff. You know, it's like what George MacDonald said, you, you don't have a soul, you are a soul, you have a body. And I think what C.S. Lewis piggybacked off of that was, is we've never met a real mortal in our lives. Everybody is made of the eternal stuff. So in that moment, in the, in the grand crescendo, that is where I really see the Holy Spirit show up in a powerful way. Because I may be able to work in the archival, I may be able to you know, work in ink and calfskin vellum and oil paints and gold leaf. You know, I, I work in the archival but he works in the eternal. And so he takes my work just to new heights that I could never dream of reaching. And that's, uh, it's a beautiful thing to see. Thank you so much for listening to the Makers and Mystics podcast. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Makers and Mystics and leave us a kind review on iTunes. Music for this episode is provided by Adam Anglin. We'll see you again next week with another episode from our Artist Profile series. And until then, keep creating. The world needs your art.